You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Our desire is to honor and share the best parts of the Christian contemplative traditions so that this collective wisdom might serve the flourishing of humanity, all beings, and all of creation. My name is Ben Kesey, and I lead the development team at the Center for Action and Contemplation. I want to thank all of you who are generous donors, giving freely and cheerfully to make this work possible. If you've been impacted by these podcast conversations and are inspired to invest in the future of CAC's mission and work, twice per year, we invite your financial support. To contribute, go to cac.org donate to make a gift. Thank you so much. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome everyone to season six of Turning to the Mystics. I'm excited to be here to launch this season with Jim and we have the wonderful Mirabai Star with us, who's a writer, teacher, and translator of the mystics and a wonderful friend of this podcast and has been on for a number of seasons with us. So welcome, Jim. Welcome, Mirabai. Thank you, Kirsten. And Jim, I'm going to hand it over to you to announce our mystic for season six. Yes, thank you. Um, uh, Yes, so we've been going through this series of turning to the mystics. And uh, so now this will be our first session on Julianne of Norwich. And uh, she's a contemporary in England, the Cloud of Unknowing, very close contemporary. So she's an English mystic with the cloud. So I'm putting them together for that reason. And really one of the great women mystics in, the, in this whole tradition. And is launching this here, Mirabai and I, uh, with Kristen, will kind of be opening up about her life and kind of setting the tone for her teachings. So I look forward to spending time with Julian. Thank you so much, Jim. I thought I'd start by asking you both about your interactions with Julian in your life and your career and how she's impacted you. You want to go first, Jim? When I was in the monastery with Thomas Merton right out of high school and uh, in the talks to the novices and with me in spiritual direction, he really introduced me to these mystics, John of the Cross, Teresa, and so on. And it was there, too, that I was first introduced to Julian. And uh, I say I read her, was aware of her, but she didn't at the time really have the impact on me um, that the other mystics had. As a matter of fact, I would say I still feel kind of new about her compared to John of the Cross and Teresa and Eckhart and some poets and so on. Um, Next, after I left the monastery, I was um, invited to uh, England to give talks in London. And uh, again, through Carolyn Mays, Finhorn, Scotland. And so that gave me a chance twice to be at her hermitage there in Norwich. And there I I spent a year immersing myself in her. And that's the first time I think I really started to appreciate her. And then lastly, in my contemplative prayer group at St. Monica's, I would spend a year on a mystic. I'd give a talk, we would do a sitting, and I got even more into her. So that's been my history with um, Julian. And now this podcast has given me another opportunity to immerse myself in her teachings. I was around the same age, actually. Um, I was 16. I was, I had dropped out of high school. Um, I don't recommend that, but I, that is what I did. And, but I was reading, I was reading spiritual books, everything I could get my hands on. And, um, I was going through a very difficult time cause I was an adolescent and my hormones were raging, you know how it is. And, um, uh, an older friend who was a writer who, with whom I was actually doing creative writing exercises in, uh, introduced me to Julian by quoting her famous line all will be well, and all will be well, and every kind of thing shall be well. And I clung to that saying like a life raft through the rest of my stormy adolescence. I would come back to it again and again. There was something about the rhythm of that teaching. It wasn't just like, everything's going to be okay. 
She repeated it three times, very intentionally. Julian's the queen of threes anyway. She's the Trinitarian goddess. Everything is in threes in this in her text. And so repeating it three times had this very powerful kind of alchem, almost an alchemical effect on me. You know, and I grew up in a totally non-religious family, non-religious Jewish family. And I just, the last thing I want to say about that is my, is years later, I, I um, said that to my, quoted Julian to my Jewish mother, who now quotes her all the time. Just that statement. It's so interesting how much power that carries. So many people know nothing about Julian of Norwich, except they know that beautiful triple affirmation that all will be well. Hmm. Mirabai, how did it come to be that you translated her work later on? Kind of by accident, really, which is what happened with all of my translations. So I was all I I was known for translating John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila from early Renaissance Spanish into very very contemporary English, and um, and then I was approached by a publisher who just asked me if I would consider first Cloud of Unknowing, and I said actually there are very good translations of Cla- of the Cloud. You know the most recent one that I knew of was Carmen Acevedo Butcher's beautiful translation. I didn't see any reason to add to it. And then they said, well, how about Julian? And I just couldn't resist, even though there are perfectly reasonable uh, translations of Julian also out there. Whereas when I translated John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila, there were only two translations in existence and it seemed like it was time for a fresh version. But Julian um, just called to me. And when I immersed, I had, I had already been studying her anyway on my own. And when I began to immerse myself in her, in you know discernment about whether or not to take on the translation project, it became clear to me that she had this vital um, wisdom to offer to our exact times. And this was right before the pandemic. So it wasn't even because she lived through a pandemic, a plague of her own, which we can talk about later. Um, but it, it was before the COVID-19 pandemic, but I still felt like there was so much about Julian that was calling to us to pay attention to right now, um, that vital medicine to help us on our way in these in these fractured times. Mm. Well, thank you both for sharing about your interactions with Julian. And Jim, would you just give us a little bit of an overview of how we like to introduce mystics in these first sessions? Yes. Yeah, my, my approach to this is that it's very helpful to have a better understanding of who the mystic was because that helps us to understand better who she is or who he is. Mm -hmm. So these are the autobiographical foundations of the timeless nature of her teachings. And this will have, we'll look at this later too closer. And this is a lesson for us too, that that God comes to us autobiographically. That is God, God accesses us in the midst of being ourselves and the, the, the walk or the path. And so I think that's why we're starting out this way with her too and how these teachings flow out of her own experience in her life and God's presence in her life and so on. I love that about you, Jim, that your teachings are so embodied. It's so much about the alchemy of our own experience. You know, that's, that, that's our mystical relationship with the one is not despite but completely entwined with our human experience so i just want to acknowledge that that beautiful attribute of your teachings of your wisdom um so yeah i think that julian's story is really juicy she had an nde a near-death experience and it was out of that near-death experience that these visions flowed, these 16 revelations of divine love, she calls them, or showings is the other word she uses um, for these visions of Christ. And so on her deathbed, we don't know what she was dying of, but it's it's significant that she was, that this was occurring during the time of the plague, the, the Black Death that was sweeping through Europe, taking down as much as 50% of the population in its wake 
you know, some estimates are between a third and half. And so Julian lived during this time. And my conclusion as a bereaved mother myself is that Julian was dying of a broken heart, that she lost statistically half the people she knew and loved during this time. It's quite likely that she lost family members who were who she loved beyond measure, maybe a husband, maybe a child, maybe more than one child. Um, there's some research and scholarship around this. Nothing is conclusive, but it seems it seems likely. And again, intuitively, I can sense it in her when she says on multiple occasions in the long text, I'll make a distinction or Jim will in a moment about the short text versus the long text. She says, at this point in my life, I saw nothing left to live for. So there she is dying. Uh, her mother is with her. This is the only autobiographical information we have about Julian is that her mom was with her at her bedside. Uh, we know nothing else about Julian, really, including her real name. She was Her name was not Julian. <laughs> we don't know what it was, just like Cloud of Unknowing is anonymous. But that um, she was called Julian as a kind of placeholder because of the anchor hold in which she enclosed herself after she miraculously recovered from this life-threatening illness and uh, decided to spend the second half of her life enclosed in an anchor hold, which was attached to the Church of St. Julian in the busy little city of, of Norwich, England. So she's in her she's in her bed. Everything's fading. She says that all visually the entire field around her was fading. She was becoming numb. She could no longer sense anything below her neck. And the her she realized that her breath was leaving her. Her mother quickly ran for the curate, for the, the local priest uh, or clergy person who came and held a crucifix above her face and said, gaze into the the face of the suffering Christ and you will go directly to him. You will go to heaven. And I always imagined for Julian, that sounded like a great uh, bargain at, at that point in her life when everything was so hard. And so she did. She gazed upon this crucifix, everything else faded, and but this brilliant light began to stream from Christ's countenance and Christ came alive and began to, to speak to her and to share with her. And well, what he shared was every detail first of his passion. She experienced everything, including copious flowing of blood. And she experienced that as not gruesome, and horrific, although it made her sad that he suffered, but rather as beautiful, warm, friendly, loving, and courteous. She uses all those those adjectives to describe to describe Christ's passion. It was like this warm, intimate, loving exchange that he shared with her. And Anyway, after these visions, 16 of them unfolded, she recovered and she wrote down everything that she could remember. And then as, as Jim will elaborate on, she did this amazing thing, which was, she said to herself, I have got to now turn inward and be with this, what I've been given and unpack it and contemplate it and winnow it to see what has value for others. So paradoxically, she removed herself from society, um, became an anchoress, but it was for the benefit of all beings. What in the Buddhist path would be called a kind of bodhisattva vow that she said, I am going to stay close to the bone of this incredible thing that happened to me this enlightenment experience, it would be called in Buddhism, for the sake of all beings, all sentient beings. And, and so from there, she created what's known as the long text, taking that verbatim 
account of her visions and contemplating them and expanding on them over the course of the next 40 years. I mean, there's so much more I could say, but I'm going to pause for, for a moment. You know, one of the things that I found so stunning about her is uh, she's in the midst of this dying experience of dying. And there's this uh, kind of unforeseeable uh, experience of God's presence to her as the mystery of love crucified, as this love, this united. And so that she sees it as the suffering of Christ is really our suffering, that God out of love takes upon God to be one with us in our suffering. And what's striking to me about her is, um, you know, it's like um, someone's like quickened in a way that you live your whole life in fidelity to the quickening. That is, you know, like the radical fidelity of living in fidelity to that and writing it out. And then over a period of years in the long text, sitting with it as a kind of a Lexio Divina, but mystically illumined yeah. Lexio Divina. So it's a Lexio that's so beautiful because it's the shining light of this love. And that's, I, th I think that's where all the beauty of her words come from, like they just flow out of her because she's channeling this mm -hmm. love and these kind of interior locutions or these given. So when we read her, she's teaching us because we're, we're drawn into the beauty of her words and drawn into her beauty of her words, she's, she's guiding us see, because we sense how beautiful it is. And then we're in the presence of the beauty of which she speaks. And uh, that's, I think that's the intimacy of turning to her as our teacher. Mm. Beauty, beauty, beauty. <laughs> and so it was a kind of miracle that she was revived at the, uh, after the near-death experience. Yeah, because, you know, nobody nobody survived the plague. That was the thing about the plague. If you got it, you died. And so it, it may not, it probably wasn't the plague, although maybe she miraculously recovered from the plague. But it was, it did feel miraculous that being on the verge of death, she ended up sitting up and writing <laughs> everything down. You know, she remembered, though, it, it was interesting. I think this happens to a lot of us. Right after she recovered, she went, oh, I remember when I was a young woman, you know, with the passion of religious fervor on my heart, I asked for this. She remembered that she had asked for three things from God. One was to witness Christ's passion. The other one was to be brought, have an illness that brings her right to the, to the threshold of death and not beyond. And the final one was what she called the triple wound, which was um, contrition, compassion, and longing for God. And so after she recovered from this experience, she recognized that her, her youthful prayer had been answered. Yeah, I was so surprised by that part of the story that, um, that, she, <laughs> that as a child she'd prayed for these things. Um, such such a kind of odd and shocking prayer for a child to, to be brought close to death but not die, you know. <laughs> exactly. Maybe if she was a teenager, yeah. but teenagers are a little more dramatic. <laughs> Something, too, that strikes me about this is that uh, I think when we're, when we're graced with the sense, experience of God's oneness, um, reflectively afterwards, we're able to look back and see the precursors for that grace. Yeah. Uh, uh, Blessed John Roysberg talks about prevenient grace. It's the graces that come before the grace. That we don't see as the grace mm -hmm. till the grace comes. Then we look back, we're being providentially nudged towards something that hasn't yet appeared. Mm -hmm you know, like an unfolding uh -huh. story, like a love story. And that's what I see in this mm -hmm. about her, too. She looked back and s saw that. I think that that happens to us sometimes. Oh, I love that, Jim. And I, th I think about that with all the mystics, now that I think about it, especially Teresa, Teresa Vavila, who, you know, as a young child was obsessed with with God and was, you know, from the turn, her turning as a small child, repeating the word forever to going off with her brother 
to, yeah. um, you know, to, to vanquish the enemies of Christianity, to building little little churches in her, her garden mm-hmm. and ensconcing herself as yes. the priest. And, and look at you, Mirabai. Here is this young girl. Mm-hmm. And instead of being so uh, passionate about rock and roll, you were devouring mystics. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, go figure. You know what I mean? It's almost like preparing the way for something unfolding that hasn't appeared yet. Yeah. And uh, and I think that invites us mm-hmm. to see things that are unfolding now that haven't appeared yet. You know, there's the crest Ooh. of an unfolding wave. Uh, we're in the midst of something yet to be fully realized. I think that's true. Oh, Jim, that's so good because we don't have to just look back on our childhood and youth. You know, maybe everyone right now listening is scrambling to think of mm-hmm. the events in your life that were those nudges to, to a mystical experience. But what you're saying that's so beautiful is that right now there are probably yes. those those providential moments that are unfolding and that it's an ever unfolding process. There that's is right. no end. Result. And that's why I think also what these are, are foreshadowings of what death will be like God's great surprise party mm. where the whole thing <laughs> will burst wide open, you know, where in the glory mm. of the light, we'll see the unfolding providential unfolding of things that have, that are eternal, you know, that never end. That. Oh, I love that. Can I read something that Julian says about that very thing? (laughs) Please. It just seems so perfectly timed. She says, this is at the very end. um, If you have, if anyone happens to have my translation, it's at the very end, page 223. I marveled at this vision for in spite of our blindness here on earth and the foolish ways we live our lives, our endlessly gracious God still holds us in the highest regard and rejoices in all we do and are. We please her most wisely. By the way, um, she uses the masculine and feminine pronouns interchangeably because Julian sees that Christ had to be female, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, We please her most wisely and truly believing in her love and rejoicing with her and in her, just as we shall one day come to live in the endless bliss of God, praising her and thanking her with all our hearts. So she has loved us and known us in her boundless foresight since before time began. She created us inside this love without beginning, and she protects us within that same love. She will never allow anything to impede our ultimate joy. Now here comes the part that really relates to what you're saying, Jim. And so when the final judgment comes and we are all brought up to the heavenly realms, we shall clearly see in God all the secrets that are hidden from us now. Then none of us will be moved in any way to say, Lord, if only things had been different, all would have been well. Instead, we shall all proclaim in one voice, Beloved one, may you be blessed because it is so. All is well. We see now that everything happened in accordance with your divine will, ordained before the beginning of time. Beautiful. Wow. Then none of us will be moved in any way to say, Lord, if only things had been different, all would have been well. What's interesting about her, what you're talking about in this uh, arena of kind of looking back and in, in the unfolding is the the spirit she, she she was taken to this very spiritual place no one else could see it you know she was in a very um interior spiritual realm but then when she awoke from that she connected it back to just a day in human life in the realm of of you know experiencing herself in her in her day-to-day human life and I find that interesting too, that we can have these deeply interior that feel um, in the mystery, but then they connect back, you know, in this kind of concrete, tangible way. So that's that's fascinating to me. Mm, Beautiful insight. Turning to the mystics will continue in a moment. So Mirabai, you were going to share some of some of her insights, you know, about God and Christ that feel important to her teaching. One about the, the idea of the feminine 
my takeaway, and I'd lo- love to hear what Jim thinks and you too, Kirsten, but uh, the two kind of radical insights that she gleaned from these visions is one, there is no such thing as sin. She says sin has not a particle of substance. It is no thing, she says, and can only be known through the pain that it causes. That's the only thing that has any kind of ontological reality or substance. And she says even that is just a passing thing. And it's and that um, it just caused the, the pain that we experience from missing the mark is uh, only valuable insofar as it increases our love for mm. God and our our humility and, and tenderness. So that's one radical uh, aspect of Julian's theology. The other one is the motherhood of God, for sure. So it's really two-thirds of the way through the text that Julian says, I realized that the second person of the Trinity had to be female because only a mother would do what Christ did, would break herself open for for her beloved children and pour herself out. And that's what a mother, that's the motherhood, that's the nature of motherhood. And so that basically God gave birth to God's self through the second person of the Trinity. That's what the incarnation is about. It's an embodied feminine reality. I mean, that's crazy. But she was, you know, she was in, enclosed in an, in an anchor hold, as we have established. And she wrote this text in secret. Mm. And it was kept secret by her um, uh, attendant, who was, you know, really her disciples, as far as we can tell, who she kept it on, Julian kept it under her bed. And when she died, this woman snatched it and made sure that it was that it was kept safe so Julian would not be defamed but certainly in her lifetime she was not in in danger uh, by saying these these things in fact she says she says I tried to line up what Christ told me with the teachings of mother church what she calls mother church I really tried people but I you know the ultimate authority was was Jesus herself and so what could I do it was it was a little different than what I'd been taught, but this was the ultimate authority was was Christ. She didn't doubt for a minute that she was being given the straight scoop. <laughs> How long was it that her work remained hidden like that? I, d- I didn't know that part of the story. Centuries. I mean, I think there was some brief a brief uh, appearance in the 18th century, but or maybe even late 17th. But then, oh, so Julian wrote in the in the 15th, oh, yeah. 14th century. Sorry, 14th mm-hmm. century. But um, then it, it was really not until the early 20, late 19th, early 20th century, from what I remember, maybe Jim, you know better, um, that, that her teachings were really recognized as more than just an obscure medieval text that nobody paid attention to. Wow. And they so align with these other mystics we've been studying, like Teresa of Avalon, John of the Cross. Yeah, wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. My thought too about uh, sin not being real first. You know, this is so at the heart of all the mystics. I think it's also at the heart of the teachings of Jesus, like a contemplative understanding of Jesus, that that God is love, and so love alone is the substance of everything. And therefore, what sin is is the absence of love, and it's the absence of love that hurts. So we feel the effect of the absence, and that's why the love is the cure for the pain, because it's the the true substantiality of everything, which is love. So that's so consistent with that kind of foundational understanding. And also um, about male and female, uh, one way to understand it too, uh, kind of classical, traditional, scholastic theology, Aquinas and so on, is that gender does not, there's a sense in which gender does not apply to God because God's beyond all attributes, all qualities, all does not at least beyond. She's beyond. And, but, but then because from all eternity poetically, in the Trinity, God the Father, God is origin, is eternally speaking God, as Logos. 
and is eternally contemplating God in the Word. And God contemplates in the Word the eternality of masculinity, the eternality of femininity. And since everything in God is God, God's the infinity of the masculine, God's the infinity of the feminine, see, and infinitely more besides. So let it, male and female God creates as, as, like this. And so you have the femininity of God because Meister Eckhart says this. He said, from all eternity, God is giving birth. God the Father is giving birth like a woman in labor. God's giving birth yeah. to the word. And so Eckhart also sees the feminine as the birthing of God. We see this also in the Holy Spirit of Hagia Sophia and the, the feminine. Unfortunately, what's happened is because of patriarchal dominance, the patriarchy has been bound up with empire. And you get this coup d'etat of the masculine over the feminine to the detriment of everybody, including men. See? And, uh, and yeah. so I think really part of these teachings of the mystics is this reintegrative thing by the divinity of the feminine. See? We see this, this birthing tenderness. It's in all of us as, hard, as a part of God's nature. And it's, a, it's an antidote for a lot of the problematic aspects of institutional religions, which tend to be patriarchal in, in the negative pejorative sense. Yeah. Right. Beautiful. Well, Julian says just what you're saying. She, she says, and so this is on page 160 for those who are interested. She says, and so in our coming into being, God all power is our natural father. And God, all wisdom, is our natural mother, supported by the boundless love and goodness of the Holy Spirit, all one yeah. God. She says a lot more about that, but just totally everything she says in the next, the, the following 20 pages confirms yeah. what you were saying, Jim, about this integration uh, between all the gender attributes of that which transcends yeah. gender. Mm. It, and that would have been so radical in her time. That, that's the thing about these mystics, Teresa of Avila, the same, like the the radicality of the embodied experience versus the dogmatic experience and how these insights come through the, the embodied experience. It's just miraculous. It's beautiful. And it's still radical. Mm. Yeah, you know, another, <laughs> uh, another, yes, another subtle thing here, I think, is this means for each of us, as say as a man, that I I as a man in in mystical awakening, I'm to transcend my masculinity, as having the final say in who I am, and the qualities of the feminine. It is the qualities of birthing, the qualities of tenderness, the qualities of thing. But I'm also at the same time to transcend masculinity in my masculinity, because I'm a man. And therefore, I'm to manifest the divinity of masculinity. And, and so the anima and the animus, you know, like Carl Jung and so on, we're each to be this integrative male and female, and we're to keep this balance and this love of God that transcends both, is the infinity of both, but it gives itself to us as male or female uh, with each other. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Do you both feel that reading someone like Julian who had this embodied insight, helps us draw out those more feminine qualities, you know, sitting with her words and contemplating what she contemplated. Do you think that helps with that task, Jim, of, of bringing out the feminine? I do. And especially I'll say this with Julian, this is true of Teresa too and Mick Teldon. You know, when I sit with Julian or Teresa, um, I, I find as I listen to the, the feminine energies of her awakened voice, it resonates with the feminine dimensions of my own awakening heart. See? Mm. And it brings it forth in me. And that's how I experience it. I, I do feel that way. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And also look how masculine she was and that she was so forthright. Teresa Vaffel is this way too. Uh, very forthright. She was not lacking in masculine energies. For example, all due, uh, all due respect to the institutional church, but guess what? You know, Jesus is feminine. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so she, you know, there was like a directness about her uh, femininity. 
anyway. <laughs> I, I did just want to go back to um, this idea of, of the absence of sin or that, that sin doesn't, isn't real. Um, I think that's such a striking thing to say. And, um, and Jim, you described it as that, did, did, did I hear you say that sin would be the absence of, everything is love and sin is the absence of the experience of that love? Is that? Now, let's say this. Let's say psychologically, physically, historically, sin's very real. As the way it expresses itself and the ways we traumatize ourselves, each other's and the earth, it's brutal. The brutal. So sin is is the tangible cruelty and the pain caused by that cruelty. So it's very real. Mm. What we're saying is in the depth dimension of things, although its impact is real and the driving energy is real, the deeper you go, you see that ultimately speaking, it has no substance. That love is the substance. And the love is present in the traumatizing energies, which is the mystery of the cross. The whole mystery of the cross, love crucified, which is what Julian saw, is this infinite love was present in, transcending, and fully present as this traumatizing moment, which is really God taking upon herself our traumatizing moments as infused with love. This Mm. is why we can undergo a loss in our life. And at the time, if it's unbearable, the loss really is unbearable. You know, it just is unbearable. There are just some losses that are unbearably, the loss is so deep. But if we don't panic, if we don't panic and walk in the loss, we can see starting to shine out through it, you know, lessons about fragility and love and eternality and wisdom. So a lot of who we are today in terms of understanding the ways of the human heart, a lot of it has come out of our own moments where everything was lost. Mm. I think it's really true. Mirabai, don't Mm. you? What do you think? Oh, that's so so beautiful. Yeah, I mean, Rumi and and so many others, Leonard Cohen. That the cracks are where the light comes in. It's. I don't think I would have designed it that way had I been God, but I am not (laughs) she. Well, actually, I am. Yeah, exactly. And so, (laughs) so you know, Julian tells us that over and over again, that love is at the heart of everything that she learned from these revelations. And and at the end of all the visions, she asks the Holy One what God meant by all of this. Would you like to know, comes the response, know it well, love was his meaning. Who revealed this to you? Love. What did he reveal to you? Love. Why did he reveal it to you? For love. Stay with this and you will know more of the same. You will never know anything but love without end. One echoing Duns Scotus on the primacy, that we don't exist because God is, we exist because God loves us. And so ultimately speaking, Mm -hmm. one thing is happening. This infinite love is infinitely pouring itself out and giving itself away as the reality of us for love's sake alone. That's it. You see the same thing. And there's nothing about Julian that strikes me and about us too. She's so confident. And I think also as we go along in the spiritual life, there can start to grow in us a kind of quiet confidence. It's not an answer. It isn't that we still don't have a lot to learn, but there's like a certainty, you know, an unexplainable certainty in the light of which we live by like this. And I think it's one of the fruits that emerges in our life in this walk is a certainty. It's an obscure certainty. Mm-hmm. You know, it's an intimate yeah. certainty. But it, it's, uh, yeah, we live in its light. Yeah. And for the mystics, their experiences are self-verifying. They're not contingent upon the affirmation or permission of any intermediaries or authorities. Is it right to say that that she wrote the short text immediately and then many years later the long text was completed? Is that 
correct? It wasn't, um, so it wasn't not, it was not long before she moved into the anchor hold following her, her near death experience. It was within a, a few years at the most, but then she spent the rest of her life unfolding the and gleaning the wisdom and reflecting on it in writing you know as jim says and i'd love to hear hear you expand on this jim that's what we all do you know we we're given these often early revelations in our lives and and it takes a whole lifetime for those those gifts to ripen it ripen enough that they not only nourish us but we can with which we can feed the world you know that and and if i may just one quick side um side trip i'd like to take us on and that is the difference between an anchor hold and a and a hermitage or being an anchoress or an anchorite and being a hermit julian it's really important to note that julian Yes, she enclosed herself in a cell and lived there for her entire life, <laughs> which is pretty intense. But it had a window that opened out onto the city street of, of Norwich. And through that window, she gave spiritual counsel. So people would come to her for, for guidance, for wisdom. And I like to think for gossip or she would get the gossip <laughs> and maybe goodies and treats they would they would hand to her through that window. And she was participating in community. Mm. She was not a hermit. And in the other window opened onto the to the sanctuary and she would receive communion um, and participate in in mass. And so she was actively engaged in both the religious life of her community and the street life of her community. And I think that gave her a very special access to humanity. She was not removing herself like so many um, of our ideas of spiritual figures, you know, who would plunged into the desert and, and remove themselves from the human condition because it's too, either too messy or worse, an illusion. You know, a lot of, a lot, it's not only the Judeo-Christian Judeo traditions, but Buddhism and Hinduism see this world as, as not only relative, but actually a veil of illusion. Maya is the word in, in Sanskrit. Mm -hmm. And that, and Plato saw it that way, right? With the allegory of the cave, that the whole purpose of life is to wake up from the illusion of this world and to see beyond the veil to the true real world. But I think that the mystics, especially the women mystics, saw God within the world, not despite. What do you think, Jim? Yes, several things. Uh, first is that, you know, there's an interesting parallel with Thomas Merton, who's a cloistered monk, but mm -hmm. through his writings, right. and prolific letter writing, he was a very engaged and very present, a cloistered person like this. And also, you know, the early desert and the early, they would, the people, these hermits that went out for this interior martyrdom to live in the desert. And the people in the villages would go out and visit the hermit. But the hermit would dialogue and they would say, give me a word. That is, speak that word in the hearing of which my heart will be awakened. And another thing that I can't help but imagining, be, imagine living there in Norwich and imagine how you'd look forward to your once a week spiritual direction session with Julian. <laughs> you know, like, oh yeah. boy, so, I'm going to see her tomorrow. And, uh, mm -hmm. and, you, and you could tell, you could sense too how she discerned where the person was on this path and how they led that person. And through her writing, she's still leading us now. You know, mm -hmm. we're, we're at the window yeah. now sitting with her, like her deathless yeah. presence is talking to us. And uh, there's a certain beauty in that, I think, seeing it that way. You know? mm. <laughs> it's got to be true, or I'm wa wasting my time with all these mystics over the <laughs> oh, really? years. You know, it's got to have something relevant yeah. for us. And that they are somehow an alive yes. presence mm. that we have access to, allies, ancestors, mm -hmm. something that is very real. It's not pretend. Right, exactly. And there's also the tradition that the teacher in passing through the veil of death continues to teach us in death. You know, it continues, mm -hmm. the communion of saints, that somehow this interconnectedness of the living and the dead in God 
is very much a part of being guided by Julian at a very intimate level as as this too is so mysterious all of this yeah mm. So just back to the anchorage. So it's the 14th century and Julian is living in this anchorage. You're saying, Mirabai, with a window to the street, a window to the church. Did she, is she slept there? She ate there? Is, does she, this in this? She never left. Never. And it wasn't uncommon, by the way. This was a kind of a, a cultural norm at the time, especially for women who didn't want to become, didn't want to live in, in a convent, but wanted to dedicate their lives to prayer and contemplation. Wow. wow. And Mirabai, in translating her work, did you notice, you know, a kind of growth or deepening of the work from when she first wrote it down to, to the, the long version? Yeah. I mean, it was like that quote I just read you about uh, at the end, she asked, Christ, uh, his meaning and revealing all of this, like, as long as we're, you know, we're, we're at it, Holy One, what, why are you doing this? And she asks that repeatedly and each, each inquiry, with each inquiry, she receives a different and a deeper answer. I mean, at the end, it was that quote I read. It's just all about love, Julian. That's all it is. But there are other times when she asks kind of like, what, what is going on here? Or she says, I realized that I was not being given these visions, these showings for myself, or at least not for myself alone, but for all, for all mm-hmm. beings. This was for the sake of everyone. And so the, I think her sense of that bodhisattva feeling of being an instrument for all, for all people um, grew stronger over time. Like, oh yes, I'm. I was chosen to be the receptacle for this wellspring of love and wisdom. Uh, but it's not just for me to feel good about myself, because because Christ kept saying, you know, you are infinitely, unconditionally loved by an unconditional, unconditionally loving, infinite Mother God. And so is everybody else. Mm. So is everybody. And she she realized that that was she needed to give that message to the world. You know, also uh, on that also is I think what she was so aware of in the short text, right, is is through the years it wasn't just what God had revealed to her, but sitting in the solitary silence, this was God's continuing to reveal to her that it was always in the yeah. present tense that what, what was given is being given and ever shall be given forever. And you see that yeah. that's the eternality of the passage of time. And, and then she invites us to see it's true of us too, you know. Yeah. Yes. Mm. I, I wanted to ask you both about that, this idea of um, the graced moments we might experience and, and if we sit, choose to sit with them, what can come out of it. And I think for a lot of us, we don't choose to sit with them, you know, and they fade into the background, mm. maybe even forgotten. And the, the challenges of the day and the fears of the day or the, the events of the day can really overtake what we were given in those events. And uh, I know both of you as writers have spent time reflecting on your own lives in in um, in your work so I just I just wonder what that's been like for you to to have that continue un, unfolding like Jim was describing you mean that that we write autobiographically yes, yeah Gemini? that you sit with with things that have happened in your life to to kind of mine yeah. them the graced events you sit with them to mine them for the the presence one thing I, that comes to me right away when you ask that question is that a lot of what I, my, the, the jewels that I mine in my writing from my own life are really quite ordinary. They're not, I mean, they're graced. There are definitely moments of grace, but they, they happen in the midst of everyday, ordinary human 
life, you know, changing a diaper and a newborn grandchild, it will do it for me. You know, that's the crack that God flows into. And, um, and so I think that in my writing more and more, those are the moments that are rising up that I, that I unpack and share with people. And um, I love reading that in other writers, you know, what, how do the ordinary moments of your life continue to reveal the treasures of what Julian would call wanting, wanting with God. Yeah, I think for me to also, I feel uh, like like an interesting spiritual exercise is to write your memoir at the feeling level in the present tense. And so you would go back to your own experience and you would write the story. And what were the moments where the light shined out through a broken place? And how did that grow? And, and, and so for me, I noticed too, it happened when I was very young for me, you know, when I was three years old. And then, and then and when you look at monastic life in a way, living in silence, it's like unrelenting ordinariness. Nothing happens. Nothing ever happens. There's no TV. There's no radio. You never go anywhere. You just eat a piece of cheese and walk in the woods and say the Psalms and go to bed. And then an unrelenting ordinariness, divinity shines out. You know what I mean? And I think we're all, we're all trying to discover that. Like, like the, There's like an extraordinary uh, generosity of God that shines through the ordinariness of everything. And we're trying to be more habitually sensitized to that. And live by it. Yeah, I think. Mm. You know. mm. Do Do you think uh, what are some forms to help people with that? Obviously, you t- you two are both very gifted writers and disciplined in your writing. For, for those of us who aren't writing books, what are some ways that we could undertake to look back at our lives in those ways? One of the things I I do is I keep um, a list of prompts either in a notebook or on my phone, my phone notes. And um, that is the prompts are, they consist of memories. Mm. Just, it can be something really simple, like a dream. I remember having a recurring dream as a child, or it can be a more profound loss. Um, And I just jot down all of these writing prompts. And then I use them as a spiritual practice it's writing practice, not practicing to be a published writer, but practicing to know myself and know God. And so I'll give, I'll time myself. This is through Natalie Gold, you know, Natalie Goldberg's method. For those of you who are familiar with Natalie Goldberg and uh, writing practice, and then I just set a timer and I write for fifteen hmm. minutes, ten minutes, fifteen, or twenty minutes. It depends on on my availability or how how full and pregnant the prompt feels to me. And then I write without stopping. Like I don't let my I don't let my hand stop moving, whether I'm writing by hand or on a device, an electronic device. I write until the timer goes off. And um, usually that practice helps me sift down through the layers of surface mm-hmm. thoughts and down to a kind of core, um, what in Zen is called you know, first thoughts or original mind, something that is more authentic and, and often surprising, you know, it, it defies my preconceived notions of what I'm writing. Mm. For me, just out of the habit, I guess, I tend to write six hours a day. Uh, I get up in the morning and seven days a week and uh, I light a candle and I write out longhand first. And uh, it's either working on a text like, Ju- like Julian. And what I'm lo- looking for is how could I find words that would make the truth or beauty with the mystics saying more accessible to us? Like I would just stay open. Like what would be a way that it would, uh, the accessibility of this or in my own life. And I also find that when I do that, there's a lot of moments where I don't know how to go on. And I get up and I walk around, I sit down. So sometimes I've spent a couple of months on two pages and I can't get past the two pages. And then all of a sudden, 20 pages will come out. Mm-hmm. So it feels like a mm-hmm. practice or a way of being, it's hard to explain really. It's a kind of a flowing of something. And um, then it gets habituated. So through the day, it's kind of like that all the time. 
I can't explain, but it's kind of a, a meditative state of sharing or channeling something like a faithful scribe, like writing it out and refining it, refining yeah. it, refining it, and then letting it go, you know. And, mm. and so it's been a big part of my life, really, for me. Yeah. Mm. Well, thank you both for sharing that little insight into, into your lives. Um, before we close, Mirabai, you mentioned this idea of wanting that, uh, that Julian shares. Could you, could you speak a little more about that? Oh, it's my favorite word. I've taken to using it, actually, uh, wanting. So she, instead of talking about merging with God or union with God, she, she coined the term wanting. Um, and wanting is a reflection of what already is for Julian. We already are one with God. We always have been and we ever shall be. And this life is nothing if not a reawakening to that reality of our oneness, wanting with God. I love wanting because it's this active verb. Um, and, and yeah, so in some ways, life is a matter of, of remembering what has always been. And that wanting, of course, is rooted in love. It's not just wanting for the sake of wanting, it's wanting for love. A word that's uh, analog to me echoes with wanting is presence. And so I put it poetically, just one thing is happening, the infinite presence of God is presencing itself, is presencing herself as a, ver a gerund, like, a ver like an act of self-donating presencing. And so it's presencing herself and giving herself away, whole and complete, in and as the gift and miracle of our very presence and our nothingness without God. And so the, the oneness is all pervasively the reality that is. There is nothing but the oneness. And really then, uh, uh, samsara or original sin or brokenness is kind of falling out of or being exiled from the infinite oneness that alone is real. And this is why our awakening moments are unitive moments. They're moments of being restored back and rediscovering what's always there. And then how to be habitually grounded in that oneness as it's lived out with the, with the, the infinite um, unfolding intricate complexities of life. You know, mm. the branches of a tree with the clouds in the sky, you know, like an endless complexity of unfolding oneness and God's the infinity of that. And that's my sense of it. And so wanting, as like she was saying, it, it's turning back around to the oneness that's always there. We don't want to become one. We become one in realizing the oneness that we never weren't. You know, we're just, it's just oneness in all directions. <laughs> and uh, yeah. One. <laughs> Wonderful. Yes. Well, any closing words, anything you wanted to mention before we, we close our session on Julian? Mm, I'd love that I had the opportunity to talk about her in such detail. I really feel like I shared all my favorite bits. Oh, Thank good. you for the opportunity yeah. with my favorite conversation partner. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I feel grateful to have such a beautiful friend, teaching partner, to talk with about Julian, with you, Kirsten, with us, as a, a grace moment. I think it'll be a grace moment for the people listening, too. Mm, to, so. And also, I'm, I'm so touched by the, like the integrity of her presence, you know, like the, the radicality of her presence that's echoing in what we've been sharing here with each other. Just, I mean, what a gift, really, to, yes, to, me too, to participate me too. in that me and too. share it. It's just... It's tangible. So, yeah, beautiful. Yes, my heart feels very warm and alive and, and definitely a sense of her radical, beautiful, uh, sincere presence and the, the gift that she was given to give to us. I feel so grateful for, for that gift and the way she committed her life to passing it on. Yes. So mm. thank you so much for helping us launch this season, Mirabai, and... Uh, Jim, thank you for the teaching that, that is to come. We're looking forward to it. Yes. I'm looking forward to tuning in. And wonderful questions, as always, Kirsten. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> thank you. 
And before we leave, I just want to say thank you to our producer, Corey, who's always in the background supporting us and supporting everyone who listens to this podcast. So thank you, Corey. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Centre for Action and Contemplation. We're planning to do episodes that answer your questions. So if you have a question, please email us at podcasts at cac.org or send us a voicemail at cac.org forward slash voicemails. All of this information can be found in the show notes. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.